In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of you perhaps have read this passage many times and never considered what it has to do with Christmas. But this passage actually is John's Christmas account. It's John's Christmas account in a number of ways. One of them chiefly is it is a description of all that takes place in the incarnation. The incarnation is a, the the term incarnation is a term which means enfleshment or taking on of a carne, a meat, a body. Uh, And what Christ does in Christmas is accomplishing the incarnation. The word who become who is become flesh, has come and dwelt among us, and therefore we understand the glory of God. Anvesh, can you bring my mic down a little bit? It's too hot. Thank you. I want to discuss five aspects of today's uh, reading that I believe are vitally important if we are to understand what is going on in John chapter 1, the first 14 verses. John is giving a treatise on the theological concepts which need to be understood if men are to have any knowledge of God. And those are principally the Son's eternality, union with God, and deity that he has in his own right and self. This is the opening to John's letter, and we're going to examine it in strict detail. The reason this is important is because Jesus predicates saving faith on having the correct and true knowledge of doctrine. We're going to look at the Son's active role in creation as a participant in it, and one who is involved in doing those things which are necessary for the world to come to pass. We're going to look as at the Son as the only light in the world, the world which is described by John as a wor- world full of darkness. And then we're going to look 
at his mission in the incarnation, and finally at the reason for his incarnation. That is to say, Christmas is only a joy if it ends in Easter. And that must go by the way of the skull. The place called Golgotha is clearly in view, even on Christmas morning. That is not a diminishment of the glory of Christmas. In fact, that is its establishing. That is to say, Christmas is not just a day which we celebrate sentimental feelings and wonderful memories of the story, but rather that story, as we kind of discussed last night, is only understood because of the rest of the gospel. Without the rest of the gospel, there would be no Christmas. Indeed, Christmas is not the gospel, although it is the beginning of the gospel, that God sent himself in the person of Jesus Christ to come for one specific purpose, that is, to tabernacle, and for that tabernacle itself to be offered up. So we're going to look at John verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 in great detail. This is probably my favorite verse, maybe in the New Testament, I don't know. Maybe not in the New, in, at least my favorite verse in John 1. And John opens his gospel with a poetic formula. And I want you to see that this is not a formula like in chemistry with a certain number of combinations that combine to produce a result, but rather this is a formula that is a description. John is describing things about this one who he calls the Word. John writes to an audience that presupposes the existence of the divine. That is to say, John is not having to assert that there is a God who exists. We know this because John, at the end of his book, writes a summary statement of why he wrote his gospel. He said, I wrote this, that you would believe in Christ, you would believe in Jesus, and that in believing you would have life in his name. The purpose of the gospels is not to establish that God exists, but rather that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, who has paid a penalty for sin. And so John writes in order to describe the glory of the Son in the person of Christ. John lays out three specific statements which have to be held together. They concern the uniqueness of the word. And that word, word, is a term in the Greek called logos or logos. And that term is a philosophical term which the Greeks had used. Now, we have actually discussed that uh, before in great detail. John is intending to use some language from the philosophers in order to convey the deep significance of who this one is. That is to say that the second person of the Trinity, as we will see, is called the Word of God, and that word in their understanding, was the thing through which all other things come to be. The Greeks had a system of ideal essences, which they had, for example, this is a, a little stool, and it has chairness behind it. They, they, they supposed that there were these original essences, the prototypes of which all things came into being. And John is saying, you were kind of correct, But really, you're missing the whole point because the logos, the very principle on which all other things are grounded, is not an abstract idea, but rather it is a person. 
And so John is using this language, but this language is meant to convey the significance and uniqueness of the word, such that this logos is the one through whom all things come. He later in this same chapter identifies the word as the son, and so it is not unfair or unright to then read the rest of these verses saying that John is describing the son when he uses the word word. And so I'll use them interchangeably over the next few minutes. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, if you can imagine this, really the entire central idea here is focused on and the word was God. Notice verse two corresponds with just the second phrase of verse one. He was in the beginning with God matches or pairs with and the word was with God. And then finally, verse three matches with the first half of verse one, in the beginning was the word. The first thing to note here is that the word is eternal. He was in the beginning. That is to say that the word was in existence when the beginning was happening. Notice clearly it says, in the beginning was the word. That is to say the word was when the beginning began. This is so important because this right here is the foundation, the denial of this fact is the foundation of the two largest heresies on the earth today, Jehovah's Witness and the Latter-day Saint movement. They deny the eternality of the Son, and it is because they hate this notion that the Word of God is eternal. They are deceived in their understanding of who the Word is, and therefore they cannot be rightly considered part of the church universal as we declared in the Nicene Creed, that we believe there is one true church who holds to the core of faith. And if you are to consider yourself a Christian, it's vital that you understand that Jesus Christ in Christmas does not exist at the nativity. He exists for all eternity. And so Jesus being eternal, as we see when we get to verse 14, that this word became flesh, he is an eternal person. He existed when the beginning was beginning. The word does not come into being at the beginning, nor does indeed does he come into being, but always was and is and is to come. John the, the evangelist, the one who wrote this gospel, also wrote Revelation chapter 1, and the, the openings of the stories or the openings of the letters kind of mirror each other in significant details. In John 1, uh, or sorry, in Revelation 1, John receives a vision of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ declares himself to be the one who was and is and is to come. Therefore, the Word is not a created being. He exists eternally. This, just, this helps us understand the unique nature of the Son of God, that he himself is eternal along with the Father. And this, of course, is when we begin to step on ground that is too high and too great for us. How can we understand with small, limited minds how the Son can not only be fully deity and fully eternal, but also be eternally begotten from the Father? That is to say that Jesus Christ in the person, uh, in the, that is to say the Son of God is eternally begotten from the Father. That is, the Father did not exist for any time or moment when the Son did not exist. This is the role 
that Jesus Christ comes to demonstrate in his incarnation. The second thing is that the word shares a union with God. Here John says, not only in the beginning was the word, he says the word was with God. Notice this clearly, that the word is rightly related to the Father and therefore has communion with God. He has a union with God and it is a fitting union. That is to say, the Son of God has perfect fellowship with the Father before any of the mission of redemption is accomplished. And that union and glory is so important to capture because as we're going to see by the end of this passage, that is what he comes to demonstrate at the cross, that same glory that he has with the Father. The Father and the Word are in harmony. They do not have any discord between them. They have eternal fellowship and perfect fellowship. Their fellowship being eternal and their fellowship being perfect is vital for if the Son is not at a right relationship with the Father, that is to say, if the Son is estranged from God, if he is kicked out of heaven and hoping to earn his way back into heaven through a right obedience on the earth, then he cannot be our mediator, for he has to make peace with God for us men who are in darkness. Not only is the Son eternal, not only does the Son have union with God, and finally the capstone of John's theology is the Son himself is divine. The Word being both eternal and having fellowship with God naturally is declared to be God. John declares the word to be God, not hopes to conjure up the word or magnify the word into being God, but simply describes it. The word is God because these two things, eternality and fellowship with God, necessitate being God itself. If the word is not eternal, the word cannot have fellowship with God who is eternal. And if the word is not eternal, then he must be created. And therefore, we understand rightly, John's formula, any proposition which is denied, dismantles the whole scheme. If you miss any point of understanding who the word of God is, then Christmas is ultimately absurdity. If he is not eternal but created, then what is he going to accomplish? If he does not have fellowship with God, how can he be a mediator? Jesus Christ incarnate must have these things as an intrinsic part of who he is if he is to accomplish the atonement. Only God is eternal. Therefore, if the word is eternal, the word must be God. Likewise, to have fellowship with God before the beginning, that is what verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God, then one must be present before the beginning. Here's where English fails us because we often get into these wonderful, somewhat silly sounding sentences, which are full of wonderful truth, that when the beginning was beginning, he was already in a state of existence. And yet, as strange as that sounds to our ears, which may not give any weight or consideration to philosophical matters or the understanding of who God is in himself, it is vitally important that we understand if Christ does not have these attributes in himself, then Christmas is no condescension at all. It is rather just another birth of an average and mundane child. It is nothing to be celebrated if Christ is not God. 
So now we turn to the active role that the Son has in creation. And the reason this is important, again, is demonstrating the right relationship that the Son has with the Father, that he is able to make a mediation for us. The Word being present in the beginning is active in the creation. The Word was not sidestepped by the Father in the creation. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. His action in the creation, therefore, shows the high esteem and regard that the Father has for him. Again, as I said earlier, the Father does not kick the Son out of heaven, so to speak, in the incarnation. He does not dismiss him or dishonor him or or recognize some deficiency in the Son, whereby the Son is the one who has to accomplish the atonement and not the Spirit or the Father. But rather, the Father has extreme regard and love for the Son. The Father's love for the Son is so wonderful that it was no slight in the Father's understanding of his action in the creation to do everything through the Son. That is to say that the Father, though organizing and and beginning the work in creation does all through the Son. The Father speaks, the Word carries out what what is spoken to Him, and the Spirit Himself hovers over or proceeds over the created world. This reinforces the aforementioned truth that the Word is not a created person Himself. This is a continuation of John's formula here, that the word is eternal. John intends us to understand this. He states it both positively and negatively. I'm going to read the verse again, verse 3. All things were made through him. That's the positive statement. And then here's the negative statement. And without him was not anything made that was made. Those words are totalizing. That is to say that through the word, everything which was made was made through him. And anything that was made was not made except through him. Do you see both the positive and negative aspects? This necessitates understanding that the word himself is not a created thing because all created things came to being through him. And you cannot come to being through your own creation. This is so important to understand, and yet it is so high and lofty. But it is intended by John to explain that the Father's love for the Son and the Son's participation in the Father's work in the creation demonstrate the extravagant love that the Father and the Son share. It is no deficiency in the Son's position with the Father, nor is the Son seeking to earn approval from the Father, but rather he comes willingly, lovingly. John further develops this introduction, and he connects it to the light which comes into the world. We already saw this at the beginning of verse 4. In him was life, that is, the life of men, that is, Jesus Christ was the one through whom God breathed into Adam, giving life to men. But that life was not just a natural understanding, it also was a spiritual thing. John summarizes the action of the Son in entering the world. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. 
The light shining in the darkness is a summary statement. It is poetic language to describe what takes place at Christmas. He says the light is shining in the darkness. This is a description of the condition of the sun. The first thing to note is that the word has life in himself. That is, life belongs to him by nature from the father's begetting. When the father begets the son from all eternity past, that begetting is not only eternal, but it is perfect. God who begets the son gives himself totally in that begetting. This is different from human begetting. I, for example, have a daughter named Susan, and she looks like me in some regards, but she is not me. And she only shares some aspects like me. This is not at all what the human begetting mirrors to in the divine. The father who begets the son from eternity past gives everything to the son that the father rightly has in himself. Authority, power, glory, indeed even life himself. This is shown throughout John's gospel. Apart from the word, life therefore is not found anywhere. Life is not found anywhere apart from the word. And this, of course, intends and includes the creation itself. The second thing is to, to notice is that apart from the word, men only exist in darkness. That he is the light of the, the life of men is to necess, uh, necessarily say that men without the word are only in darkness. If you take all lights out of a room, what takes place? Darkness. Darkness is the state of the absence of light. And so when John describes the sun as the light of men, he necessarily calls us to conclude that without the word coming, men would only be in darkness. The word being the light of men was not always present among men, and therefore his coming was a great inbreaking of light. Neither do men have a different light, but as John says, only darkness. The third thing to notice here is that the darkness does not overcome it. The darkness is not able to comprehend the light. It's not able to topple the light. This again is helped by a natural illustration. What takes place in that dark room if you bring the light back in? The darkness flees away. Darkness is not able to overcome light, nor is it able to topple it. It's not able to be victorious over it. Though the word shines in the darkness, not all become enlightened. This is so important to see because so many have this misunderstanding of what Christ does in the incarnation. They suppose him to come to free all men and to give light to all men. And indeed, he does give light to all men, but not sufficient light so as for them to all be saved. This is very important to see. Without understanding this, you devolve into what the church has always considered a heresy, the doctrine of universalism. That is to say that all men, regardless of their reckoning with Christ, regardless of their appealing to Christ for mercy and subjecting themselves to his uh, atonement, They have no fellowship with God. And apart from the light coming into the world, not only do they have fellowship, but the mere fact that the light comes into the world does not mean that all men partake in that light to the same degree. 
This is extremely important to see from the text. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not comprehended it. Men love the darkness rather than light. In John 3.19, Jesus says concerning his coming into the world that this is the condemnation of the world, that although the light has come into the world, men love the darkness because their deeds are evil and he exposes them. And so the light who comes into the world in one way, in a true way, as John says, the light shines in the darkness, but in no way does it enlighten every man so as to give them hope. Why, therefore, does the word, the light, come into the world? John tells us plainly that he came to call men to become children of God. But first, John shows us the sinfulness of sin. In verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming in the world. Here is one verse. If you take this verse out of context, you will have a deceived doctrine that is contrary to the scriptures. Verse 9 says, The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And in no way am I saying that that verse is not true, but that verse does not stand on its own. That verse must be understood in relation to the rest of its context. Verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Immediately, John clarifies what he is saying, not backtracking, not dismissing a prior truth, not revising what he has previously written, but rather giving understanding to what he says. Although the light comes into the world and enlightens every man, it does not enlighten them to the same degree. For if it did, verse 11 would have to say, he came to his own and they all received him. It doesn't say that. It says they did not receive him. First, we have to see that the true light comes into the world and shines, not that all men receive the same light, but that they all share in the light. Again, to use an illustration, a little light may show you some things in the room, but it, not, it does not necessarily show you everything in the room. By way of an illustration, I learned this the other day when I was going down to my treadmill in my basement. I moved a nightlight that was in the common living room near the stairs into the workout room itself. I have a small little gym. It's, uh, it's very, very small and dingy. It's a basement. It's wonderful. And And I moved that light from the hallway, from the main area of the room, into the room, and the door was closed. Now, about three months ago, I dismantled a uh, tent canopy thing that I had on my deck, and I put it in my basement. And here I come with a laptop in hand and a bottle of water, a, a cup of water, and I get to the bottom of the stairs, and I don't see anything other than a little bit of shadows coming in from the windows. I don't see what's on the floor. Although I saw everything else in the room, I did not see what was on the floor. I proceed to kick the big giant metal beams that were holding up this this, uh, patio cover and, and almost spill water all over my laptop, ruining the day. Luckily, it, it survived. The point being, light does dispel darkness, but it does not dispel darkness for those who are blind. 
People who are blind remain in their darkness because the darkness is not external to them. The darkness is internal to them. Brothers and sisters, this is a clear image of the gospel, that the darkness which you need delivered from is not external to you. It's not the government. It's not your parents. It's not your temptations that come externally to you. The darkness is what is in your heart. And that is the darkness which is being described here. That darkness must be exposed. The true light shines, but not in such a way as that all men are able to see it, but rather that all men are able to, uh, to know him. Though the true light was in the world, men are not able to know him apart from a self-revelation. That is to say that God must disclose and, dis- and declare to darkened sinners should they be able to see who he is. Men are spiritually blind and unable to see unless God grants them sight. That's why John, other than all the other gospel writers, includes so much room in John 9 for Jesus opens the eyes of a man born blind. Various things that Jesus does in his powerful ministry had been done in the past. For example, the raising of the widow's son by Elijah, uh, the various acts of power that the, the uh, prophets of old would do and the patriarchs did. All of these were somewhat aforementioned in the Old Testament, but throughout the history of the world, no one has ever opened the eyes of a blind person. And that is uniquely given to Christ to emphasize his role in opening up the eyes of the blind spiritually. Third, though the true light comes to his own people, even they are unable to accept him. The spiritual condition of all men is the same. All are blind and unable to see the light. In Acts 10.34, we hear that God is no respecter of persons. And what this is designed to say is that it does not matter if you grew up in church or if you were a Jew at the time of the first century or you were a Gentile. God does not choose you. He does not judge you or evaluate you based on the condition of your ethnicity or what you do with your time or what you perform. God does, does not respect personhood. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you and everything that you are culturally and all the descriptions that we could come up with you for you. He doesn't use those in distinguishing those who receive light and those who don't. They make no difference in the scales at all. Therefore, the question must be presented to us this as thus, if no one can receive him of their own, how does John tell us that some, in do, uh, some indeed do receive him? Verse 11, he came not to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, this, this sermon is really an exercise in delivering you from the doctrine of out-of-context quotation. Really, that's what this is. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, could also be hijacked just like verse 12. You see, I, one would suppose, but I believe verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who, be, who believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become children of God, period. But verse 12 and verse 13 stand together, not apart from each other. If you have one verse, it falls over. If you have two verses, they lean together and support each other. Now, that doesn't work everywhere, but that just by a way of illustration. A person could potentially say, well, I do receive Christ. I do believe in his name. Therefore, because of that fact, God gave me the right to become a child of God. But brothers and sisters, that is not what the scripture says at all. It does not say that in the least. It is not contingent upon your believing these phrases, but to all who did receive him, who all believed in his name, those are merely descriptions of what takes place because of verse 13. Those who were born were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, that includes the will of the one who's doing the believing, but by the will of God. It is God's will alone that enables men in their darkened condition to believe. Man being blind in sin, dwelling in darkness, has no access nor authority to a share in the things of God. We've seen this over and over again, that the scriptures present an image that the children of a one, for example, the children of God, have access by their nature as children to the things of God. But in verse 12 and verse 13, we're considering those who are strangers to God, those who are dwelling in darkness. They have no access, no right, no share, no authority to God at all, but rather are strangers to him. Those who receive the true light do not do so of their own will, but because of the will of God who freely grants it. God sovereignly chooses and ordains by his own will for his own glory those who become his children. This is so clearly presented in the text that it it is not just a doctrine to be debated with people who disagree. It is a doctrine which becomes the grounding of your assurance. If you chose to believe in God, you can choose not to believe in God. If you choose to trust in Christ, what gives you any confidence to know that one day you might not choose to believe in Christ. But not only this, it also is a doctrine which glorifies God, because if man has any, any participation in his deliverance, then the glory does not belong to God alone, but rather it belongs mostly to God, but somewhat to me. You see, this is so common to the heart of a deceived sinner that this doctrine actually prevents one from coming to worship the true God. True worship, worship that is done in spirit and truth, requires true doctrine. That is not to say that someone who has a misunderstanding of this particular point is not a real Christian, but rather there are things which, like the dross removed from gold, need to be purified if God is to be glorified through that person's faith. So we finally come to the end of our goal here. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word being eternally divine takes on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the Son exists eternally, 
And so the incarnation is not the dissolving of the Son of God. The incarnation is not also the masking of the Son of God such that the Son of God goes dormant. So the Son is not still up in heaven. The Son is not on hold. The Son takes on flesh. This is the right way to speak of and to think of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Though the Son becomes man, he does not cease to be God, for he is the only Son of the Father. This is what John is saying here. We saw his glory, that is, the Son incarnate, demonstrated the glory that he had, the glory as the only Son of the Father. Throughout his entire life and ministry, the Son is Emmanuel. That is, he is God with us. Word who becomes flesh tabernacles or dwells among us. This word who dwells with us is not just a moving into someone else's neighborhood. This language is clear in the English, but the word that is used here by John is actually a a deeply meaningful word, one that indeed shapes the entire character and nature of John's gospel. The entire point is that he doesn't just come in to be with us in an abstract way or to have some sort of fellowship with us for what fellowship has light with darkness, but rather he comes to tabernacle among us. That is, his enfleshment, the taking on of flesh, as the Son of God stepped down, becoming small and hidden in the womb of his mother, that enfleshment, the taking on of a body, was done and described as a tabernacling. That is, he comes to not only mediate the presence of God, but he comes to do something vitally important. Throughout the scriptures, tabernacles and temples are the place of meeting and visitation with God. When God delivers the Israelites out of the the nation of Egypt, he commands Moses to establish a tabernacle so that men would be able to come and to present themselves before Yahweh. The exact same thing takes place. The tabernacle falls apart. It, It is removed and eventually the temple is established, and the temple is the place in which offerings might be made, both atonement offerings and guilt offerings. And so Christ here is not just tabernacling, he also is templing, if you will. The word tabernacles to show his people who the Father is through teaching, mercy, and miracles. And this is normally where we stop when we understand what tabernacles do. Tabernacles demonstrate the glory of God. And John said, he became flesh and dwelt, and we beheld his glory. But brothers and sisters, the idea needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. Tabernacles, after they have fulfilled their course, are torn down. This takes place throughout all the scriptures. And certainly at this church, if you've come here for many years, you know quite well this is a pattern which is so clear and explicit from the text. After the tabernacle of Moses falls away through disuse, it literally disappears from the textual record of the scriptures. It falls apart because it's a natural thing. It's worn down. It disappears. Either the Israelites forget where they placed it, 
or it literally falls apart and God did not command it to be reestablished. Likewise, after the sin of the Israelites, after they no longer worship Yahweh, but pervert his worship, indeed even worshiping other gods in the same temple, God's jealousy is aroused and he calls up a foreign nation to come in and remove it. The reason why is because the temple had run its course. It was, no, it was no, uh, in no way able to be the place through which God would meet with his people because it was made of earth. It was not that which was from above, but was made of stone. It was earthly, it was mundane, it was common. And God himself, through this invasion, tears apart the temple. The tabernacle passes away, it fades away. The temple itself is destroyed, not once, but twice, and indeed will happen again. But at this point, we see the imagery quite clear, that once the tabernacle has accomplished its purpose, it is removed. The foreshadowing is too clear to be missed. Christ takes on human flesh for one specific purpose in order that he would offer it up. The tabernacle, which is his own body, is the end or the goal of all of Christmas. Christ himself testifies this exactly in John's gospel, even indeed in the very next chapter. He says after he goes to cleanse the temple, for it was perverted in, in all of its use, he then says something, and the Pharisees are not able to perceive what he is saying. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John goes on to offer a helpful understanding verse, a summary verse saying that they did not understand this for he was speaking not of the temple, but of his own body. And then it goes on to say that after the resurrection, then the disciples believed. They, they came back, they revisited it in the light of what had happened. And this is how John is able to say that we, that is the disciples, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only. The glory of Christ is not shown through radiant beams from thy holy face. I'm on a war to attack horrible Christmas songs. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures plainly tell us that Christ had no form, and in the King James it says comeliness, that's the most appropriate word. He had nothing desirable that drew us to him. I, I said last week that no crying he makes is a heresy. That's a different heresy, but here's another heresy, that, that Jesus Christ in the incarnation was, uh, was a special thing. That it, he is special in that it is God coming down, but he had no external glory that we should be drawn to him. He was common. If you were passing him on the streets that day and you were not being drawn by the Father to come through to him through the Son, you would have passed him by as some other stranger. You would have never spoken to him. In fact, I'm slightly, I slightly believe this is what inspired Alanis Morissette's song, What If God Was One of Us? Have you ever heard this song? It's slightly heretical, but it, it has a, a kernel of truth. She says, just a stranger on the bus. I think that's the only redeeming line. The point is that Jesus Christ did not have radiant beams from his holy face. 
His glory was manifested only specifically and most clearly in one act, of course at the transfiguration, of course through all the miracles and teachings and amazing things that Christ did, but he himself says that his glory is at one place. And we see this clearly in John. At the end of John's uh, discourse from Jesus as he's going to the cross, Jesus then at that moment asks the Father to glorify him. And the reason we did all of that background work in John 1, verse 1 through verse 3, to understand who the Son of God is, is because this is what is being shown, not only through Christmas, but at the crucifixion. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Remember what we said when tabernacles have run their course, they are torn down? Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, the Father, who does turn his face away from Christ on the cross after Christ had become sin, is actively present in the crucifixion. The Father is presenting the glory of God to man through the crucifixion. And as just as we saw yesterday, everything that God does is completely imperceivable to the natural mind. How can a cross, the most shame-filled execution, being tried and condemned through a mock shadow sham trial, being judged by a foreign oppressive army, being hung naked on a tree, pinned up on pieces of wood, how can that be glory? It is glory because it is revealing the love that the Father has for his children. That is why it is glory. And that is the glory that John says we beheld in verse 14. We do not just behold his glory abstractly, but we behold the glory in connection to his tabernacling. He takes on flesh in order to give it up. This is exactly what we were learning with uh, with the writings when we were going through the series of Hebrews. And this is where we're going to close today with a reading, a short reading from the book of Hebrews, explaining this very thing, that when the tabernacle had run its course, Jesus declared, I have accomplished the will that you have sent me to do. Now glorify me as I go to the cross. The writer of Hebrews gives us the exact same thing. He says in chapter 10, verses 5, through 7 and verse 10, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You see, the writer of Hebrews is being given a revelation by the Spirit of God that this was Christ, uh, these were the words of Christ in the Spirit that as he was coming into the world, he was declaring to the Father through the incarnation, I come to do your will. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, then I said, this is Christ testifying of his own accord, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain some of the things that, that verses 5, 6, and 7 describe. And 
as those offerings which were the offerings of the old covenant, but then he explains what Jesus has done by accomplishing the will of the Father. And by that will, that is the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would come now and that by your word and through your spirit, you would communicate these truths to us, that they would become our all in all, that they would shape everything in our life, that we would not only revel in and delight in and take joy in learning the various things about you and your relationship to your son, but that we would also know concretely how it is applied to us. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from wrong sentimentality, but at the same time that you would allow Christmas to become truly joyful for us, that we would have not only the right emotions of joy, praise, and thanksgiving, but that they would be rightly informed by what you have done. We pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would build us up with knowledge and that that knowledge would not puff up, but it would become truly profitable not only to our souls, but through your grace, it might become encouragement to our brothers and sisters. We ask, Lord, that you would deliver us from mere sentimentality and that you would give us true and lasting joy, that we would celebrate and worship you in your presence. Amen.